C.S. Lewis wrote this. The humans... Sorry. The humans' nearest approach to constancy is undulation. The repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back. A series of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They are merely a natural phenomenon with, which will do us no good unless you make good use of it. So some of you might already know what book this is from, but this is a quote from the book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, the book is a satire, and basically it's set up like it's a collection of correspondence between uh, two demons. One of them is the older and experienced uncle demon. His name is Screwtape. And uh, he's writing to his younger, inexperienced nephew uh, named Wormwood. And uh, in the book, in the story, uh, all the demons are assigned an individual. They're assigned a person who they're supposed to tempt and to lead astray. And so Screwtape is writing these letters to Wormwood because he's trying to give him, like, feedback and advice on how to how to do that well how to do that effectively effectively lead the guy astray um and in that specific passage that i just read uh he's referencing an idea known as the law of undulation as you heard screw tape is talking about um humanity's fluctuation between highs and lows um it's something that we all experience and as I read the screw tape letters, I read it years ago. I read it when I was in college. I really enjoyed it at the time. Um, but this particular passage has always stuck with me since I read it. Um, and I think that's because I really do see how true that is. Life seems to be a constant pendulum swinging from one side to another. We experience peaks when we're happy and everything seems to be going well. But then the valleys eventually come. The darkness sets in, and so does discouragement. It's like our lives are spent traveling through a mountain range. You can't go up without expecting to come back down to a valley. And you might be able to go back up, but it's just this up and down progress. Um, those highs and lows look different for different people, of course. Um, and some people are going to experience that to a greater degree than others, but we all experience it. Life is mingled with joy and sorrow. We all know it. We all experience it. And most of the time, that is brought on by external factors and circumstances in our lives um, and things that are beyond our control. Um, but sometimes it isn't. Sometimes everything circumstantial in our lives might be going well. It might be going right. But we still feel listless and sad a person can experience despair without need of a crisis in their lives. I have seen this in my own life. 
it, it drives me crazy sometimes because there are days when everything is going right, but my attitude is horrible and my outlook is bleak for no good reason at all. Now, I want you to know up front that I'm not seeking in this sermon to answer the why question. Why must we have such experiences? Why do we have to experience the lows with the highs? Um, why must so much of life be spent in those valleys? I'm not seeking to answer that question this morning. Instead, I want to answer the question, or hopefully do so, the what then question. What then should we do when we are in those valleys? How should we think about them and face them? What should we think about grief and how to deal with it? Those questions in this sermon topic have been weighing on me so much lately because I know that so many of you are in those dark valleys right now. I mean, we prayed for Phyllis. I know others are dealing with struggles as well. People are in those dark places. I don't think any sermon that I've preached before has burned in... And it's not to say that I've preached a ton, but I don't think any sermon I've preached before has burdened me as much as this one has um, because of that. So many of you may be in a deep valley and the mountain peaks that line the edge of your view seem impossibly far off. You have or you are losing loved ones. You are scared about what your future might bring. You're tired and burned out. You feel alone. Maybe you're sick and dealing with chronic pain. The struggles of your friends and family weigh heavy on you. You feel numb to joy and nothing good seems to penetrate your heart. And maybe none of these things describe you at this moment, but they will eventually. The psalm we are going to look at, Psalm 126, meets us in those places. It will take you by the hand and lead you through the valley called grief. So with that said, let's look to the psalm. Let's look to our guide. Um, if you want to turn there now, Psalm 126 is on page 517 in the, the Black Pew Bibles. Um, but as you're turning there... Um, I'll have you guys follow along with me as I'm about to read it. Psalm 126 says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The counsel that Psalm 126 gives to those who are grieving is repeated and summed up in the final two verses. For the sake of clarity, though, I want to rephrase it um, and give it to you as a main idea for this psalm. From its own grief, Israel reminds us of this in Psalm 126. Those who grieve by faith will receive eternal joy. 
Now notice the cause and effect relationship there. Those who grieve by faith will receive eternal joy. Grieving by faith results in eternal joy. Now for that truth to be appreciated for all that it is, there are a couple things that need to be addressed first. And those are going to be our points this morning. I want you to understand where we're going and how we're going to get there, so I'm going to kind of lay it out for you right now. So first, we're going to consider the place of grief in the Christian life. We've talked about this undulating high and low process that human beings go through. Where does grief fit into that for the Christian life? Does that change? We're going to investigate that. Then we're going to consider what it means to grieve faithfully. Uh, What does that mean? Um, And then we're finally going to look at what the fruit of faithful grief is. And as we see in the psalm, it is joy. Um, So with that said, let's get started. So what place should grief have in the Christian life? We have to talk about this because though we oftentimes know the right answer, our lives don't actually reflect it a lot. The way that many of us live our lives, it would seem as though we expect grief to maybe disappear or at least significantly diminish from our experiences. Think back to C.S. Lewis's, um, the, his reference to the law of undulation. We can act as though the valleys are supposed to become smaller and less frequent. So, like, let's say you have, this is, this is the process for you. As Christians, it, we can think that that becomes just the peaks, maybe. And it maybe dips a little bit, but it does so less frequently. And it doesn't really deep, dip very far. Um, it's just supposed to stay high all the time. Um, I think we can have that expectation without even realizing it. Especially many new believers I've, I've seen expect their faith to functionally replace sadness in their lives. They expect their conversion to end their struggles. I saw this a lot, especially in college. Many of my friends who became believers in college kind of went through this process. Um, and unfortunately, the initial zeal many of them had when they when they first became believers, was replaced with melancholy and discouragement from grief and apathy because they didn't know where it was coming from. They didn't know why it was returning to their lives. They thought something was wrong. They thought maybe their love for God was waning or his love for them was um, because they didn't expect the grief to return. They expected happiness and exuberance to remain their normal state. But the question is, is that right? Is that the biblical perspective of grief? Look with me at verses 1 through 3. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. But... Then look at the next verse. This is key for understanding the context of what's going on here. Look at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Notice that verses 1 through 3 are referring to the past. And verse 4 is what their current prayer is. They are no longer in the state that they were in verses 1 through 3. Psalm 126 was written actually in a time of deep grief and mourning in Israel. We don't know the specific circumstances, but we don't really need to. It could have been 
after they returned from exile, um, the verses 1 through 3 could be referring to that. It could have been referring to when God led them out of Egypt. There's so many instances that that could refer to. But we don't need to know the exact circumstance. All we know is that things were once amazing and the nation was rejoicing. They experienced a revival and blessing like, like we wouldn't believe. But now it could not be more different than that. Something has happened and the nation has been driven to near despair. There is collective and open weeping, as we see in verses 5 and 6. They're going about their work with tears. They are weeping openly. This is a state that I would say that we as a church have not seen, where all of us collectively are weeping constantly because of the circumstances we have faced. Um, It's a dire situation. But again, this is Israel that we're talking about. This is not just some pagan nation. This is the nation and people of God. Just because they're God's people does not mean that they're exempt from grief and sorrow. And the same is true of us. Think about the New Testament. Um, Chet is preaching through Acts. Think about Acts then. Um, Have we not seen Christians grieving and mourning in the New Testament already? If Christ himself was not immune to grief, why do we think we would be? Think about it. What is famously the shortest verse of Scripture? Simply, Jesus wept. It is the shortest verse in all of Scripture, but the implications of those two words are huge on our understanding of grief. Grief does not disappear from the Christian life, nor should we expect it to, especially if our own Lord and Savior experienced it. And that is because God nowhere promises that our circumstances will miraculously change for the better or that our capacity for grief will shrink. Um, And I think that last part's key. It's not that our capacity for grief shrinks. In fact, I would argue that it's the opposite. I would argue that our capacity for grief actually grows because our capacity for love grows when we become Christians. Think about it. Grief is the demonstration of love for something that has been lost. When you are sad, when you are grieving, it's because you love something that is gone or has changed for the worse. If you love a person, if something happens negatively to that relationship or to that person, if something harms them, you will grieve for them. If you love some, a certain aspect of your life, if you love your job and something changes and disrupts that, you're going to grieve that to a degree. And that's going to be proportional to the significance of the love and the change that has happened. But when we love things, we grieve when they are gone. Grief and anger are very similar in this regard, if you think about it. Anger, on the one hand, erupts when something that we love is threatened and you're fighting to protect it. Grief, on the other hand, erupts when something that you love is disappearing and you long for it to return. Therefore, because our capacity for love grows throughout the Christian life, the Holy Spirit opens our heart to love more. Our capacity for grief and sadness also grows. When God changes your heart, you begin to love people more deeply. You empathize with them in ways that you never were able to before. 
So when they're struggling, you share in that in a greater way than you were previously capable. And you grieve in a, to a greater degree with them in that. So rather, I would say, than our valleys shrinking, I would argue that both they and the peaks actually become more pronounced in our lives. And I think that's especially important for men to hear. So guys, I'm talking to you right now. We are particularly prone as men to believe the lie that biblical manhood calls us to be stoic, um, nearly unfeeling people who aren't phased by anything. Um, grief and tears are something for lesser and weaker people than us. That's how I, I know I'm prone to think that way, and I know I'm not the only one that thinks that. Um, but let me ask you this. Which godly man in the Bible isn't seen weeping at some point? Think about Moses and Joshua, David and Paul and Peter. And as, as I said before, Jesus himself. They all experienced profound joy, but they also experienced profound sadness and sorrow and mourning. And they expressed it through tears. And why? Because their tears said more about their love and humility than it said about their manliness or their manhood. And the same is true for us. We must fight against culture's notion that biblical manhood or that just manhood in general means we never feel grief and we never express it in any capacity or way. It excuses pride and calls it manliness. A biblical man is one who is humble and loves deeply, though, and therefore grieves deeply also. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we're all going to become like weeping, blubbering messes where we're just constantly on the verge of tears. That's not what I'm saying. The Christian life, praise God, is not a journey towards despair, as we will see later. It is a journey towards joy. But we do need to take grief seriously and not expect it to disappear from our lives and the lives of others just because we follow Christ. And you might think that I'm preaching to the choir on this one and that you don't need this reminder. You might, you might realize that, but our misconceptions about Christian grief can be far more nuanced than just saying, oh yeah, it shouldn't exist or, or something like that. Do you view grief as a sign of immaturity or sin? Does it frustrate you when you get sad yourself? Do you lose patience with others when they have experienced long seasons of it? Or do you quickly question their hearts in those seasons as though, oh, they're just sad because they've committed sin? Um, if we just assume that grief is a sign of immaturity or sin, that's also wrong. That's also mistaken. Yes, grief may show up in someone that is immature and in sin, of course. But grief itself does not necessitate that one of those two things is present. Those types of reactions tend to indicate that you are not rightly understanding and valuing grief. So again, Christians are not those who don't grieve. When we face crisis, when those around us that we love are hurting... When we're facing physical or spiritual suffering, we should grieve. It is not something to be embarrassed about. As long as there is death and suffering in this world, our grief still exists. It is a right response to the effects of the fall. 
and it gives others the opportunity to love us in that grief. So let's be those that grieve. Um, Let's be those who acknowledge it and utilize it for what it is. Um, And to acknowledge that it speaks to the love and humility that we are called to display through Christ. But let's also be those who do it faithfully. And that's where we begin our second point. We want to be those who not only acknowledge our grief, but we want to be those who do it faithfully so that we might experience eternal joy. Because we've established that grief is normal and expected. It's an expected aspect of the Christian life. Um, we're not shielded from it just because we follow, follow Jesus. That does not mean, however, that our grief should look the same as everyone else's. And that's, that's an important distinction for us to note. As Christians, our grief must look different from that of the world because we have a hope and a confidence that the world does not have. So our grief is going to look different, even if we experience it more deeply. I will use the term faithful grieving, even though we don't see this necessarily, this term explicitly used in the text. I'm going to use it to describe our uniquely Christian experience of grief because it's totally reliant upon our faith in Christ, as we'll see. Um, We can't have this outlook, the outlook that we're going to be looking at in our grief without him. Also, it is faithful because we do not just succumb to our emotions as Christians. It is a grief tempered with truth about God. That means that we are not given over entirely to our sadness. We don't let our view of reality come only through the lens of our pain. We widen our scope. We remember that God is present in reality, and that makes a difference. We keep ourselves tethered to him by remembering him, even if at times that is only by a single thread in our experience. So I come back to the question, what is faithful grieving? Psalm 126 gives us four principles that I want to specifically point out to us. Um, So we're going to make our way through each of those. I have those um, for the screen as well, so if you're taking notes, you can jot those down. They'll be up there. Um, But the first one, is that faithful grieving believes that God is capable of restoring our joy or your joy. Look with me at verses 1 through 4 again. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Israelites are lamenting right now because God's blessing does not seem to be with them. They're suffering deeply. But notice what they start with in their psalm. They don't begin with their lament. They begin by recalling God's great and mighty works. They're remembering God's incredible blessings upon them how he made them a mighty nation, how he helped them to thrive, and they were glad under his protection and pleasure. How he led them back from the brink of enslavement and exile. He restored them to as a nation. God revived his people, and there was no limit to their, to their success when his hand rested upon them. In their grief, the Israelites are remembering that God is capable of so much 
more than what we're prone to lose hope in. They have every reason to believe that he can and can end their suffering. And that is why their request in verse 4 is to restore their fortunes like the streams of the Negev. Now, I'm guessing you're not familiar with what the Negev is. The Negev was a region south of Judah um, that was pretty much just an arid, desert-like wilderness. Um, they, they didn't have any rivers, but they would have ravines. Um, uh, well, at least they wouldn't have r- rivers regularly. For years at a time, the Negev can go without having any rivers. But on occasion, they'll have a, a, a strong rainfall in the surrounding mountains. And when that happens... All of the water flows down from the mountains and creates these raging rivers through the ravines. And after that happens, even just within a matter of days, those dry, like lifeless areas become teeming with life. Green plants and flowers and things grow up around it just within days. And um, I would actually encourage you guys at at some point later, if you look up um, the what was the term, Negev River Rebirth, someone actually got video footage of um, a river reforming, and it's crazy because it's, it's utterly dry. There's no water around, and then you hear in the distance this rumbling, and then you see this, like, torrential, like, well, it's not rain, but you see this huge flowing mass of water that comes flowing through, and it becomes like a rapids in a matter of like a minute. It's, it's incredible. Um, but all of that to say, that type of radical transformation that the Negev goes through is exactly what the Israelites knew God was capable of. That is why they're praying for it. Friends, our grief may feel like things will never be good or right again at times. It seems like sadness will never pass. Like the best we could hope for is just to become numb to the pain. But praise be to God, though, that that is not the case. He is more than capable to bring about the most profound change than we could ever imagine. He can restore hope to those who have lost it. He can bring life to those who are dead. And God is far greater than any source of grief in your life. The Israelites knew this well because they had seen God's powerful changes and restoration time and time again throughout their history. And they recalled it in their memory while they were grieving. They didn't lose sight of that fact. And the same should be true for us. When we grieve, we grieve as those who know our sadness can be overcome. If he so wished, God could remove in an instant every bit of heartache that you're experiencing right now or at any point in in your life when you're experiencing the deepest anguish. You are not one who grieves without hope for escape because God is that hope for you. He can easily restore your joy and raise you to higher levels of pleasure and delight than you have ever known. But even more than that, Psalm 126 shows us that we can even expect God to do that. Not that he's just capable of it, but that we can expect God to restore our joy because it brings him glory. So that's the second principle. Look with me at verses 2 and 3. It says, Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. 
The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Notice the praise that God's blessing produces in this situation. Pay attention to who is marveling at God's work. It's not just the Israelites. Notice who else it is. The pagan nations around them, um, those among the nations are saying this. They're all in awe of God and the blessing that he has brought upon them. There is no doubt to not only the Israelites, but the nations around them that God has done a miraculous work in his mercy and grace. We can trust that God will restore our joy because it brings him glory. When we are those who grieve with confidence that joy will come again, it makes much of God when he when he confirms that confidence and proves it right by restoring us to that joy. And that confidence is on display not only to us who are experiencing it, but even to the non-believing world. When you trust God through tears, that he will see you through your troubles, that is a remarkable testimony to his power and to his goodness. And the faith that he gives us to remain steadfast in him. And when we share that trust with those around us, it is a testimony to them as well. So when you're grieving, share that with others. But let them know you trust that God will restore your joy. And when he does, that speaks to them that God is faithful to uphold his promises. That God is good and loving. Because of that, your grief becomes an opportunity to bring glory to God and to evangelize to those around you. Don't waste your grief by simply succumbing to it. Trust that he will use it and you to magnify himself. But that doesn't mean that we trust him silently, though. The third aspect of faithful grieving is that we call out to God in it. Look with me again at verse 4. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Let's not overlook the fact that this psalm is a prayer. It's directed to God. Faithful grieving entails crying out to God in prayer. He wants to know what is troubling us. I I was reflecting on this last night, and it just really struck me. Parents, think about a time when your kids were really upset about something. They're in tears. Maybe they got hurt. Or maybe something got taken from them, but they're, they're distraught. Chances are, you probably know what it is that was bothering them. But when they come to you with tears in their eyes, what do you do? How do parents console their children? They take them in their arms, they hold them, and they ask them what's wrong. Friends, our Heavenly Father does exactly the same thing. Our prayers are an opportunity to go to God, to be held by him, and to let him know exactly what is bothering us. And it doesn't matter that he's omniscient and already knows what the problem is. Just like our parents, he listens even when he knows what's wrong already because he loves and cares for us, and that comforts us. And he does answer prayers too. So go to him in your grief. Israel did not see their suffering as a reason to question his goodness and to turn from him. Instead, the nation clung to him. They clung to his mercy and grace even more tightly than they did before. And so we should do the same in prayer to him. 
And finally, the last principle um, that I wanted to touch on, on how to grieve faithfully, is that we don't stop sowing, even if it's through tears. Look with me at verses 5 and 6. It says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Grief and sadness is not an occasion to give up. It is a time for perseverance. This passage clearly states that those who return with shouts of joy are those who go out sowing in their tears. The sowing must be done, and they're doing it, even though they're weeping. And the importance of that is highlighted even more when we consider the context that the psalm was written in. Israel was an agricultural society. So, that means most of the people farmed. They produced crops. So, for them, the reality of needing to persevere in their work was literally a matter of survival. They would starve if they didn't if they didn't persevere and make sure they sowed their seed in the due season. They wouldn't have any crops in the winter if they didn't. So Psalm 126 is reminding us that it is vital that our work and responsibilities and ministry carry on even when our tears are flowing and all we want to do is stop. And that gets harder the longer our struggles persist. It gets harder when it doesn't go away through our prayers, when it, when it goes from days to weeks and then months long and we are still struggling and the tears keep coming. We want to stop. But we're called to continue to sow by faith, knowing that the joy will come. This doesn't mean that we don't rest. What this means is that we don't give ourselves over to the sorrow. We don't stop trying as though there is no hope to live for anymore. We carry on knowing that the tears might come as we're washing the dishes, as we're folding the laundry, dealing with screaming kids, when we're um, trying to prepare a sermon like I was this week. Um, we don't stop when the tears come because we know that they will eventually dry up. God will restore the joy. They will not continue forever because he will bring us to joy eternal. So life must be lived and we must carry on in that. And that leads us to our third and final point. I started off by saying that Psalm 126 teaches us that those who grieve will receive eternal joy. Well, it is that reality that, faith, that makes faithful grieving possible. What is our faith to be in if we don't have that promise? It is that reality that sets Christians apart from the world as we face our trials. We have something to look forward to. Look again with me. We just looked at verses 5 and 6, but I want us to look at it again. These are so precious. It says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. You guys, there, is, there really is fruit to be born from our sorrows if we are faithful in them, if we trust God. God really does promise you joy after that weeping is over. 
And he even goes further than just to promise joy afterwards. He doesn't just say, you'll experience sorrow and then joy will come at some point later on. He goes further than that. Um, He actually says that your joy will be produced from your faithful grief. That's That's what we see here. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Because they are sowing in tears, they will know shouts of joy. They will experience that. God will use your faithful tears to bring you to joy. Your trust in God will not be in vain. As I've been preparing this sermon, I've been reflecting on grief that I've experienced at different stages of my life. And I've been trying to ask myself that question. Do I really believe that God will always use my faithful grieving to produce joy, to bring me to that joy? Um, And I confess, as I was reflecting on this, I was brought to my knees realizing that I do not believe that all the time. Um, like even, even just this week, even just yesterday, I experienced regular moments where I was failing to believe that, where I would think in, out of discouragement, like, will God ever really bring me out of this? I experienced those thoughts far more often than I'd care to admit. But in meditating on this passage and when I really truly look at my life, Uh, I have come to this conclusion that the greatest springs of joy flow out of the deepest wells of loss and pain that we experience. And I really do mean that. I believe that the darkest seasons of our lives are the ones that actually produce the greatest joy in our hearts. And I think that's because those are the moments that most deeply impact our perceptions and understanding of God. So consider this example. If God restores your joy after you are just kind of mildly upset for a couple days about something, if God restores your joy after that, um, he shows you faithfulness to his promise and um, you, you, you come through that, that's not going to impact you very much. You might not even remember it days or months later. That God's faithfulness to his promise in that moment doesn't stick with you. However, when you have spent months battling debilitating depression or suffering and God brings you back to a place of joy and gladness and lightheartedness again finally, you don't forget that. If you've experienced that, you know what I'm talking about. You don't forget the grace God showed you through that season. That has a profound impact on your view of him. You trust him more now at times after that. You believe more firmly that he will uphold his promises to you because you have seen him bring you from, through something that serious. And having, and having that stronger trust in God brings you greater joy and comfort than anything else you could compare it to. So the greatest fruit of joy really does come from the deepest seasons of sorrow we experience. Friends, your grief is the truest test of where you place your faith. When you persevere despite it, despite that grief, you give evidence of your faith in ways that are impossible otherwise. It says nothing of our faith in God if 
while we have faith in him, everything is going perfectly and we never have any trials or struggles. We're never tempted with anything else to replace it because as long as we have faith in him, everything is going perfectly. That doesn't show how genuine our faith really is. However, if you hold on to your faith amidst tears and pain and loss, if you trust him, even in those times, then that is evidence of a true and real faith in your heart. And since it is true faith that unites us with God, then that is why we can be certain that we will reap joy afterward. That uniting faith makes us recipients of God's promises. As Psalm 126 tells us, joy is the fruit of our faithful grieving. Now, as, as I'm kind of concluding, I want us to look at John 16, verses 20 through 22. This passage helps us to understand how Christ fits into this picture of Psalm 126. Uh, the Israelites knew that God would restore their joy if they were faithful to him. We see that very clearly in Psalm 126. Um, but the true, full picture of this psalm is so much grander than even they knew. They had in mind a temporary, fleeting joy. The one that we saw in verses 1 through 3, where the Lord had restored them, but that's already gone. That joy that he gave them is gone already. That's what they had in mind, that God would restore joy again, but then it would be right back to sorrow. We see in Scripture, and especially in John 16, that we have so much more to hope for, that the joy that we have that we can expect from the Lord is eternal, that it goes so much further than what the, the Israelites knew. So if you haven't already turned there, turn to John 16, verses 20 through 22 with me. And just so that you guys understand the context of this passage, this is Jesus speaking, and it's during his final discourse to his disciples right before he was arrested and crucified. So... Uh, follow along with me as I read these couple verses. John 16, verses 20 through 22. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Think about the context of this passage. Jesus was saying this to the disciples in reference to his own crucifixion. He knew that they would mourn his death, but the world would rejoice in it. The Israelites and the Romans, they wanted to crucify him. They enjoyed putting him to death. They thought he was an evil and blasphemous man. But their joy, the joy of the murderers, was not the joy that would last. It was the disciples who would know the ultimate satisfaction. As a woman's excruciating labor pains lead to the joy of birth and a child, Christ's suffering in crucifixion led to his resurrection and the rebirth of all his people. 
Jesus promises to the disciples that their sorrow will become joy because he will conquer death himself. He will conquer sorrow. And we, on the other side of the resurrection, know that that is true. We know he was raised from the dead. The greatest loss, the greatest pain, the greatest suffering ever endured, ever, led to the greatest reason for joy possible. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we, his people, can know that no matter what suffering we face in this life, joy will always have the final say. Every tear will be wiped away. Sadness will be no more. Grief will end and joy will be eternal because our Lord and King has made it so and we will be with him for eternity. He confirmed that 2,000 years ago when he came up out of the grave and proved himself to be the Lord and Savior of mankind. Now, there is a dark side to this though too. Joy eternal is promised to those who have entrusted their lives to Christ. This is not promised, though, to those who have not done so. For those who resist Christ, who choose to live for themselves rather than for him, your weeping will not cease. Your weeping will be eternal. You might gain temporary respite from your, from your grief in this life, but it will not last I pray that no one leaves here this morning in opposition to Christ. I pray that that is not true of a single person in here. But if it is, I pray that you turn to Christ. I don't want that fate for you, but it is the fate that you deserve and will receive for your sins. Those of us who who can hope for joy only do so because of Christ, because he paid the price for our sins himself. So let him do that so for you as well. This life is the best you could ever hope for if you do not devote your life to him. But again, for those of us that follow him, we can expect something infinitely better than anything that this life could bring us. So brothers and sisters, let's continually remind each other of that. We need that, especially when we are struggling in grief. Those who grieve by faith will receive eternal joy. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, I, um, we come to you as those who may be grieving now or those who will know grief soon. Um, Lord, we pray and hope, like the Israelites, that you would bring profound change and end to our suffering and grief, that you would replace it with a radical, profound joy quickly, like the streams in the Negev. But Lord, if it is not quick, if it is not fast, we take comfort in knowing that it will come, that you will bring joy. Um, to our lives, and that it will never leave. Father, we thank you that you have given us your son who we can delight in and find our joy in. God, let us worship him today in light of that. We praise him that he endured the greatest grief so that we could know the greatest joy. We pray this in his name. Amen.